0: That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
1: Hello and welcome to your book. I'm your book inspector, Daisy Buchanan, and I'm thrilled to be sharing a conversation with Emma Batchelor. Emma is the author of the brand new book, Now That I See You. She is the winner of the hugely prestigious Vogel Prize, one of Australia's most significant literary awards. In Diaries and Letters, Now That I See You unfolds a love story that, while often messy and uncomfortable, is a poignant and personal exploration of identity, gender, love and grief. Emma is also a winner of a different prize. She took part in an auction for Fair Share and Books to Nourish. Books to Nourish will raise money for Fair Share, the UK's longest-running food distribution charity. If you enjoy this episode, please consider donating to Fair Share. I had an absolute blast with Emma. It was such a privilege to speak with her. Congratulations, like the Vogel Prize. What a, you know, such an enormous achievement and such a huge thing to win and we're just we're so honoured to have you on our podcast um so could you tell the listeners a little bit more about the Vogel Prize um and how you came to enter it and and about the, the novel so it's just been
2: such a whirlwind of a week I'm still completely overwhelmed by it yeah it's very personal and I think It's made me feel very vulnerable to to be telling the story and for it to be shared this way. But I think even just this first week and the feedback I've had has made me feel that it's worth it, which is good. I'm so happy to hear that. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah, it's been just unbelievable. So I entered the Vogel, it must have been about a year ago, and I'd, I'd written this manuscript that was based on my experience as a partner of a person who is transgender. And while we were going through all of that together, I just really struggled to find things that were from a partner's perspective. I found lots, like we found so much together that were writ- was written by trans people for trans people, which was amazing and so helpful. And then a lot for families and from particularly a parental perspective, but I just couldn't find much that was helping me or just paving a way for navigating this experience that I hadn't ever thought about being a part of. And so I hoped that I could take what had happened to us and what we'd learned and to to produce it into something that could potentially be helpful to other people and not just people in that exact experience but anybody who's questioning their gender or sexuality or even just grief and mental health
1: as well I was going to say it feels so so timely of course it is a perennially timely you know this is something that I I think and I hope we're having more conversations about I really really hope that there are more tools to to talk about it and prompts for empathy and you know you and your book, isn't it? that's an enormous part of that. But um, I just read *Detransition, Baby* uh, by Tori Peters on the um, the Women's Prize long list. Um, yes. So, um, Alexandra Hemsley's book *Somebody to Love* came out in the UK at the start of this year. I don't know if that's come out in Australia. You ha- had an experience and were looking for stories, and you know, looking for common experience and shared. Th- and now you are part of this this movement and this conversation that's beginning to. To get louder and, you know, more open and more generous, I think.
2: I hope so. I really hope so. I would love to read that book. I don't think it's out here in Australia yet. And I've not been able to get hold of Detransition Baby. I've ordered it from two separate bookstores and nobody can get it in for me yet. I think there's a problem getting it here in Australia. So I'm so excited to read that. But I think I think you're right. I think it's a really exciting time for queer voices and just voices all different kinds of voices being able to tell their own stories and for it to be received in a more compassionate and empathetic and generous way which i think hasn't always been the case even in recent time so i feel i feel really so so lucky to be able to have my story coming out now and to to be a part of that i think it's
1: incredible i'd love to hear about the the books that made you a reader and then a writer mm. and the authors' voices that growing up you reached for and connected with?
2: Yes, I've always, always, always been a reader. My mum reads so much. And her father, my grandfather, is he would probably read a book a day. <laughs> He's just wow. constantly reading. So we come from a family of readers. And I think from a young age, I was always reading books that were too old for my for my age group my partner just yes my partner and jesse and i were actually reflecting on that the other day when we were looking in the ya section and talking about all the wonderful ya books there are now and i think i must have just skipped that and gone straight from children's books to adult books because i couldn't think of any ya that i'd read when i was young but i think I've read so many murder mysteries because that's what my mum loved. And we have a series here in Australia. I'm not sure if it's in the UK. It's The Friney Fisher Murder Mysteries by Kerry Greenwood. Don't think I know those. The Friney
1: Fisher Murder Mysteries. Yes. Fabulous like, name.
2: She's a very glamorous 1920s sleuth and she lives in Melbourne and she solves murder mysteries. Uh, but my mum had been reading them when I she was pregnant with me, and so I'm 32 now, and there's still new ones coming out that I read now as well. So I find that very special.
1: Oh, that's wonderful! Is it all the same author?
2: No, I believe it is definitely still Carrie Greenwood who is writing them, which is lovely and oh, exciting. Oh, that's wonderful!
1: And, so, and are these quite sort of managed merger mysteries? Was there are we sort of in, in Agatha Christie country?
2: Yeah, a little. I've read so much Agatha Christie as well. That was something I also read when I was way too young and sometimes it would give me nightmares. Um, No, yeah, they are quite posh actually, but it's quite fun because it's a kind of like I guess that very English glamour but in Australia (laughs) and solving murder mysteries. So it is yes. It's a bit of escapism, and definitely very glamorous.
1: That sounds fabulous. And I imagine that sometimes when you take something out of its original context, it's possible. It's like the the essence of of Agatha Christie, the old world charm. I'm guessing yes. is sort of you know turned up to eleven.
2: Yes, <laughs> I think I read a lot of British books
1: and British authors.
2: I was thinking about that too, as I was going to look at my book in the Australian author section at a bookstore. And I felt so ashamed that I hadn't read very much Australian literature. I seem to have, and I don't know if I've inherited it from my mum or what, but just so much of the stuff on my shelf is British. And I need to, I've, just bought so many new books and they're all Australian authors so I'm very excited (laughs) to read them
1: I'd love to hear what's on your pile because again I'm so ashamed I read so little in the way of Australian literature
2: have you read Picnic at Hanging Rock I feel that's our other classic
1: I've seen the movie Um, yes who's that who's the author of Picnic (gasps) at Hanging
2: Rock I'm trying to remember. It will be here on my shelf somewhere. That was something I read later in life as well. Oh, and The Harp in the South, that's all about the Irish who came to settle in Sydney. That's a very sad book actually. Where is Picnic It hanging Rock? There it is. Oh, Joan Lindsay. That book is just every bit as cinematic as the film. It's actually a very good adaptation. It's very, like, tonally spot on. It's a very, yeah, there's a real undercurrent, menacing undercurrent in <laughs> Picnic at Hanging Rock.
1: I must read it. I, I definitely read, talking about YA, I wish I could remember the titles of them. But I have a memory of reading something in the 90s that I found in the school library, and it's about um, two teenage girls who I think lived in the Melbourne suburbs and they were pen pals and one was quite I think one was a bit edgier and a bit more sort of left to her own devices and the other one had quite a strict family and I remember really enjoying that but um, I'm just going to put that out there and maybe yes someone miraculously a listener might that might jog (laughs) someone's memory
2: yes the only thing I can remember reading was a book called Looking for Alabrandi." Brandy and it is by, let me check, it's set in, there it is, Melina Marchetta. It's um, set in Sydney, and I think it was in the 90s or the early 2000s. And it's about uh, a young Italian girl who's living in Sydney and goes to this quite posh school. And the kind of relationship she has with some of the people there and her family. And I again, I read that when I was in my 20s. So I feel like I missed out on reading all these things where they would have been like the right formative time. And then I came back to them later so that I hadn't missed out. But that's a very good one as
1: well. I really like the sound of it. I'm going to try and hunt it down. So I'm so sorry I interrupted you, but we were talking about your um, your TBR oh, pile.
2: Yes, it's too big. It's too big. There's um oh, an Australian book that I read recently that I loved. is called A Lonely Girl is a Dangerous Thing by Jessie Too, And it's about a young woman who used to be a child prodigy at the Violin. And she's also a sex addict in her later adult, well, earlier adulthood. Um, And so it's a lot about kind of grappling with having been so successful at something and then what you do after when you can't follow through on all those expectations that are put on you. And then I think, or how I interpreted it was that her sex addiction is a kind of a way of filling that hole that was left of all the adulation she received as a violinist and it's set in Sydney as well and it's a really, really interesting read. And is that
1: fiction or is that a It's memoir? a fiction
2: book. Um, Jessie used to be a violinist but I don't know that it sticks too closely to her to her experience. But it's a really interesting conversation about sex because I don't think I'd read anything really about female sex addiction before I'd read that. And I really enjoyed, I thought it was a very important conversation and the characters of Chinese descent. And so there's a lot about race and class and how that sits in Sydney as well, which is really good.
1: I would really love to read that because it's such a rich and interesting area. I think that, I think, you know, we're having so many conversations now about, I suppose, success and ambition and professionalism. And I think that, even now, a lot of the adults I know are sort of say All of these measures and markers we've given ourselves, and the way we've we've pushed ourselves, and that's what you can be, you know, successful on paper, but not necessarily happy or relaxed or or well adjusted, and you just feel sort of tormented by that. And that's you know the people who are sort of well into adulthood. So to be. When you're a child prodigy, I can't imagine anyone is saying, it's the taking part that counts no. <laughs> things like that. So it sounds like a fascinating read. Yeah,
2: there is a lot about that filial expectation and how you live up to what's expected of you from your parents, but also, yeah, all the adults around you in such a circumstance.
1: No, I think you'd love it. I was listening to the Adam Buxton podcast and he interviewed Torval and Dean. I don't know if you if you listen or if you've come across did I did I did I did I have heard but that But they one. were talking about the constant rumors but you know are, are they are they in a relationship are they together is there a big romance and they were saying well you know no at the time like, our whole lives were just skating and trying to get better and better at skating
2: <laughs> It's so interesting I thought that was really interesting too because we do even When we see a male and female partnership doing anything, we do just apply that sex to it or assume there must be something going on even when there isn't or there doesn't have to be because like they're ice skaters like that's what we're excited about for them but still we love to apply (laughs) apply relationships
1: to to couples well it's like even with tiny tiny children and my most broad-minded switched on you know friends and family will if they're Tiny, tiny toddling child has an opposite gender pal. It's like, oh, yeah, girlfriend and boyfriend, and it's so weird. Is we yeah. never ever make romantic assumptions about other gender pairings, which is odd. No,
2: yeah, even this um, this week, my partner who's transgender and I, we were getting a couples massage together, and we were just talking with our therapist. And she asked me, were we best friends? And I was like, no, we're a couple. And she's like, oh, oh you had best friends It's huh? <laughs> like, that's okay. But I just, I guess being in a lesbian relationship that's, I guess, newly defined that way to me. I that I think that was the first time I'd experienced like that erasure of our relationship and just being assumed to be friends and not a romantic couple. And it really, and it wasn't malicious at all, but it just, yeah, it really took me aback. And I thought about it a lot afterwards.
1: That's so interesting. And I'm really, really excited to to read your book. I imagine it, it's addressed there that when... You are in a a romantic relationship. You know, it's a heteronormative one. The world just recognises without any explanation, and the way you move through the world and the way that changes. I mean, I, th- I think it must be so interesting to witness both things and both ways of being treated, but also it's very frustrating. And it, you know, I think we still have so far to go when it comes to what we assume about people.
2: Yes. Yeah. I. I've been checking myself a lot on that too as we go through this journey because I had never, never questioned my sexuality before. And so I just, or even particularly gender, I had in, in my feminism but just not, I guess, not in a practical way until my partner and I were going through this together. And I really noticed now just how ingrained those assumptions are and how quick i am to gender people when perhaps i don't need to or it might not be important to the situation and the the language that i might use to describe somebody it's yeah it it is you just take it for granted i think until you have to question it and then it just opens up a whole a oh whole my of things you need to think about and question which is important
1: and good but a lot of what well, I think a, a hard but necessary thing, you know, just being alive now, mm. I'm finding that if I want to be a a decent, compassionate, empathetic and helpful citizen, I'm going to I'm going to get it wrong before I get it right. And I've just got to make peace with the yes. fact that you know, there's going to be lots of trying and failing, but it's the alternative is that you don't try, so the failing is a necessary part of the journey.
2: (laughs) Absolutely and I put a lot of that pressure on myself to to be like instantly perfect and know what to do and what to say and what to what's helpful and I think I didn't allow myself that space to fail and that's a bad a bad place to be in as well.
1: I wanted to ask you about you know, love stories and you've written about a a, re- mm. a whole relationship in, in transition, I guess. And I was wondering about the romantic stories that have moved you over the years.
2: Yes, I think that's really changed over time because lately I've found myself really drawn to lesbian love stories or one's with bisexual characters like <laughs> yours, I love. This um, sounds like I set this up, doesn't exciting. it?
1: How we talk about
2: that? I know, but no. <laughs> you can
1: edit
2: this out. Bye. No, I do love your book for that. And um, exciting times by Nisha Dolan, I loved for that. Oh, and I read this amazing. It's here on my shelf. It's called My Lesbian Year of Loneliness, and it's by a Japanese author. Her name is Nige- Nagata Kabi, and It's a graphic novel about her first lesbian experience and realising that she was a lesbian and how she might act on those feelings and kind of all her mental health stuff and everything. So I think the love stories I've felt drawn to lately are more queer love stories and particularly with lesbian characters because I think that's helping me discover my queerness in a way (laughs) that I hadn't before. But certainly when I was younger, I remember, like I love Sophie Kinsella and I have all her books and I remember like the sex scenes in those, like they're very heteronormative, but they, I don't know, I found them, that was what really excited me and I loved reading those kind of lighter, happier love stories where kind of there's all the trials and tribulations but it all works out well. (laughs)
1: <laughs> i'm a huge fan of sophie kinsella and i love nisha dolan's book and um that graphic novel you mentioned i'd love to check that out because i don't know that but that sounds really really fascinating but sometimes something i think about all the time in the undomestic goddess i believe i think nathan yes,
2: that's my favorite yeah he's my favorite that is my favorite and the sex scene where they're out in yes. the kitchen garden and they're picking berries like oh my god <laughs>
1: Such a good one, it, because it's the the anticipation, isn't it, and the the waiting, and that the whole, yes, you know, her sort of saying, did she say like, I don't take long, only six minutes, and he he makes a wait yes. by as I say, six minutes is a boiled egg.
2: <laughs> yes. <laughs> I think I learned a lot about my adolescent sexuality (laughs) through Sophie Kinsella and those questions. remember
1: even right at the very beginning of The Secret Dream World of a Shopaholic, which I think I read, I remember, I think I got it for my 15th or 16th birthday and really having a... And that, you know, the first line in Don't Panic, you know, because I kept being given sort of contemporary literary fiction that wasn't doing anything for me. And so this immediate Don't Panic, Don't Panic and the credit card bill. And I thought, I'm in heaven. This is wonderful. At the beginning of that book, I think she's just broken up with someone who doesn't believe in sex before marriage. And she's very grumpy and frustrated about that and doesn't make an enormous deal out of it. But it's just so nice to this is a woman sex is important to her. She's not sort of defining herself as such, but just like as a a matter of course, it's something that she enjoys and she cares about. And it felt very refreshing to have that. Yes,
2: absolutely. I hadn't thought about that before, but you're so right. It really is just a matter of fact, of course. And if you're reading that as a young person, like how wonderful is that? Especially I read so many classics when I was young because I think I was being pretentious and wanting to read all the things that you should read and that are brilliant. I read so much Jane Austen and that's something I still reread and come back to again. I wouldn't say that those characters or I interpreted them as being sexually repressed necessarily because it's so part of the, the society that they live in, but I think that anticipation as well and the... The smallest things, having the biggest eroticism, I found really powerful as well and influential when I was young.
1: I think there are so many gaps and definitely as a hormonal reader, I was adding my own secret scenes and assuming like, well, you know, they're not actually having it off, but they'd like to be or, you know, they, they would be or, you yes. know, this isn't sort of being… Described there is a, a worldliness and a sexiness to her favorites, like you know, mm. like Emma definitely has a sex drive, Lizzie Bennett definitely does. Yes, you know, I think Lydia yes. clearly does.
2: Yes, <laughs> there's an amazing sequel. I don't normally like reading, kind of particularly with Jane Austen, you know, there's so much Jane Austen adjacent. Um, that I don't normally engage with, but there's a sequel to Pride and Prejudice. I think it's written by Helen Halstead and it's called A Private Performance and it's the only one that I love because there's sex in it and you get to see Lizzie and Darcy have sex. And I'm quite sure that Mr Wickham ends up with syphilis from all his extramarital affairs on Lydia. And I just love that ending for him. That's like the two things that stick with me from having read that is this brilliant ending to Mr. Wickham. And, yeah, they're having a more, like you getting to see inside the inner workings of their relationship.
1: Excellent. Take my money. That sounds glorious. (laughs)
0: If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash loss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. plushcare.com slash loss.
2: This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive & June. Olive & June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which
1: We'll be back to Emma very soon, but before we start the second part of our conversation, I wanted to let you know that as she's a long-term listener, it seemed only right to let her pick the Steal of the Week. Listen out. Emma, because of our initial technical difficulties, um, shall we end yes. this and then restart it? No worries at all. Let us leave and come back. We'll see you soon.
2: <laughs> We're back. Part two a very convenient spot for your Steal of the Week.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Is is there anything you'd recommend for Steal of the Week?
2: It's a book called New Animal by Ella Baxter, and she is Australian, but I believe it is coming out in the UK slash maybe already has. And it's set in, I think she works in a funeral home, and it's like a mix between working in that industry and I think she has like a BDSM fetish. So I'm very excited to read. That's my next thing I'm going to read. So I recommend that. That sounds
1: great.
2: I know, what a combo. I was at
1: school with a girl and I think she was a couple of years below me, but we both worked. We had the same very dull Saturday job that wasn't actually dull at all. We were preparing medical documents to be scanned and it could be heartbreaking and it could be revolting and it could be very very dull yes. but um this girl did her work experience at a funeral parlor I think for a joke but she did that for two weeks and loved it and did it as a Saturday job and was just wow. loved the people and was sort of fascinated and obsessed and I think she was really good as well she had a sort of a real knack for communicating with bereaved people and mm. sort of you know talking to them with real dignity and compassion, but also being quite normal about it and not being too, yes. you know, head tilty and hushed of voice.
2: Yes, yes, yes. I think you'd have to have a very special kind of empathy because I'm over-empathetic and I feel like I would just be a mess over everyone <laughs> and not very helpful. But I think, yeah, it would be such a balance between striking the right kind of empathy and protecting yourself from seeing that all the time, but being compassionate and helpful to the people that you're helping as well. It would just be such a tough job. I mean
1: I imagine though that's
2: something that,
1: you know, you're doing in your book that I think is really valuable. And I think it's something that people don't necessarily always appreciate when it comes to things like auto fiction and memoir Mm. you're not just telling the story you know people sort of saying it's my favorite complaint that you know so writing this must have been like therapy for you and you're like well yes no you need a good therapist if you're going to write it well That you are selecting the details and finding the arc and as a writer you must always be thinking of, of readers too you're not just Throwing it all up and yes, seeing it lands. Yes, I
2: found that really interesting actually because when I first started writing, it definitely was for me and being helpful for me. And I have, I go to therapy and I've done a lot of therapy through all of this and I wouldn't say that the two <laughs> are interchangeable. You definitely need both. But it was maybe the third draft where I began to think actually, I think there's something here and I think it's something good and that I need to think about this for an external reader. And that completely changed the way that I thought about the story and how I needed to construct it and what the best way to tell it was. And that kind of helped me (laughs) in a therapeutic sense as well, because it forced me to think about our situation and what had happened in a way that, had to make sense to other people and it wasn't just me and my journal and filling in the blanks. It was having to reason out everything and and check that it made sense or if it didn't make sense to think why and what could make it make sense and what would be satisfying for a reader because what was happening in real life might not necessarily be but then balancing it with the responsibility I felt for truth in terms of like mental illness and also in terms of transgender identities it was a real balancing act
1: but I can see that being a real challenge gosh I was reading something the other day and I'm feeling quite conflicted about it and thinking I'm not sure if this is a valuable and insightful exploration of mental illness Mm. or whether this is something that's just so distressing and so there is no hope here and whether this is quite I remember you know thinking I've done the work as they say and I feel as mentally secure as I've ever been and I feel quite unmoored and alienated by this and quite lonely and desperate and if anyone vulnerable I wouldn't want them to read this I think it would bring them the opposite of comfort and I don't have a definitive answer on this at all. I feel as a writer, I feel some responsibility, I think, to to uplift and entertain. Mm. I don't think that's something I can put on all writers at all. And I think that if a person did just want to write their pain and chaos and not make sense of that, that's absolutely their prerogative. But I guess what's complicated now is this is at a time when we so so need voices i do think there's a real need for stories that are honest but positive i would imagine that during your experiences and what you lived you were looking for the stories of hope and i don't know whether you felt any pressure to cut to write one
2: (laughs) yes i i couldn't find many hopeful stories a lot of the things that i read and could find the couples broke up and that just wasn't what I needed (laughs) to hear or to read Mm. at the time. And I found that I just, it made me feel very hopeless because in my experience, I I never, it never changed the way I felt about my partner. I still loved her just the same. I just, it was just such a change. And I just, having not questioned my own sexuality before, I just wasn't sure if I could, attracted to her as a woman and thankfully for me I've discovered my sexuality was much more fluid than I thought and it was it ended up being a complete non-issue but I think for a lot of people and couples that I'd read about it was a problem and for some people their se- sexuality does feel more fixed and that is their experience and I think also it's it's just such a huge change for the trans person for those that are around them and because so much of our society is gendered and is fixed in those binaries it's just so much that you take for granted falls away and you don't realize until you're in in that that moment and I I hope my story because it does have love at its core and it is although it's difficult and there are hard parts there are I think the love shines through. And while we don't end up together, we're back together now, which is the best thing in the world. But at the time that I was writing and when I submitted it, we were separated and I didn't know if we'd be back together again. But so there's a bit of an uplift, but I think I thought about that too. And it's something that people ask me, they're like, oh, we wanted you to be together at the end. But I think, I hope that it's, it's realistic because I didn't want to give false hope but I hope there is still I did want to have (laughs) some positivity in there as well but it is it's such a balance it's really difficult to think about and to balance what is entertaining or if not entertaining at least engaging and helpful against what what the truth is and the truth can sometimes be bleak
1: but then it makes me so happy to hear the joy in your voice now and to hear that you're living the happy ending not that it's an ending I've just written something about the pursuit of love Mm. my all-time favorite book and what I love so much about that is it's a book it's it's kind of an anti-fairy tale but it's for people who love fairy tales and right from the start you know linda and fanny are just in love with the notion of love mm. and they don't care who and they're just like the love's erupting out of them and they're just so bored and they've got these huge imaginations and they're stuck in this sort of you know draft a huge house and in, in the middle of nowhere and in other stories there's things like you know youth and virginity and, and experience the prize and you, you know mm. i think that morality between the wars was looser and more open than than we necessarily remember it mm. to be but you know she wasn't slut shamed or disgraced there was some you know tusking. linda even walks out on her first husband tony and and her child which i'm not saying for a second i think oh you know women <laughs> leave your infant children just get up and run away and go do your own thing but I i really love that she is not castigated at all, really, for, you know, th- there's an understanding that it's a fairly awful thing to do to abandon a kid, but there's no, she really isn't shamed for it. She's just quite, in a way, sort of simple and straightforward in matters of the heart and just wants to love and makes mistakes because she loves love so much and she sort of, she gets there yeah, in the I end.
2: I think that's really special. It just, it made me think, Completely, I don't know why, probably just motherhood <laughs> of motherhood by Sheila Hetty. And that shame, I think, of putting yourself first and your needs first and perhaps your relationship first ahead of the love of a child or the potential love of a child which I think I discovered that book through you and this podcast, actually. And I love oh, really? yes, I love it so much. I think that's been like a very, very influential book on me in many ways, actually.
1: It was a, that book. It was an open window in my brain. I don't have children. I don't think I want to. It, it's not that straightforward. That so, Even now, there's almost like a caricature or a cartoon, like the childless woman. And it's this idea that you can feel ambiguous about it. And Often I felt that it's a kind of emotional failure. Again, like double shame. I'm ashamed that I'm not doing the thing that women are supposed to do. I'm making air quotes, yes. which is good in your podcast. <laughs> but also I'm kind of, I'm ashamed that I, I can't even own it. I suppose, that I do feel that motherhood isn't a book about a lady in a skirt suit with a flip phone and being like, I've got to, <laughs> worry about the stock market, yeah. I'm not going to have a kid. <laughs> it's, it's so much softer and more thoughtful. Have you read uh, The Panic Gears by Nell Frizzell?
2: No, I would love to read that too. Because, yeah, I think motherhood, because I don't have children either and I don't think I want them either. And I think it's actually uh, the way our relationship now is I feel I'm getting less questions about it than I used to like being of a certain age and not having children another interesting assumption
1: people make
2: or don't yes yes and I think but certainly I thought a lot about it and I still think a lot about it as many of my friends are having children but that book just put down All these things that I'd been thinking in my head and there they were on the page and it was just, yeah, just amazing. But I should get the panic years.
1: It made me feel much more choosing of my choices, I suppose. And it's really unusual. I mean, Nell is a a friend of mine and I think she's Mm. a wonderful writer and I've been a fan of her journalism and her brilliant Vogue columns and her Guardian columns for many years. But um, I think she's so generous about you know what Sheila Heti writes about i suppose you know sort of not motherhood not parenthood you know you read beautiful books about motherhood but they're also quite you know the kind of propaganda are they <laughs> yes, i've had the yes. the sleepless nights and this has been like my whole life and um i i must convince you to join my cult and now <laughs> very impressively does not do that at all it's very thoughtful do you have any favourite fictional parents or or nightmare fictional parents
2: oh, i think mrs bennett's in Pride and Prejudice is one of my favourites, especially in the BBC adaptation. I think I hadn't seen that when I first read Pride and Prejudice, but now I don't know the name of that actor. Is that Alison Steadman? Oh, it is Alison Steadman, yes. Her her portrayal is just now etched in my mind and her screechy voice I just love it. I don't know that I read many books, actually, now that I try to think about it, that are about mother-daughter relationships, which is strange. And I don't know why I don't really read about that.
1: I know that most interesting things happen to people when you, it's, I suppose, true of children's books more, but, you know, you need to take the parents out of the equation. Um, Emma Jane Unsworth's book, adults which has just come out in the UK in paperback which is brilliant that is about among other things a grown-up woman trying to have a relationship with her mother and her mother's a sort of glamorous end of the peer entertainer psychic personality he keeps sort of resurfacing in inconvenient and annoying Ways and is as grandiose as Mrs. Bennett.
2: Mm. Oh, I've got it on my shelf, but I haven't read it yet. So I have to read it.
1: <laughs> you are going to have a wonderful time. I'm very jealous that you've got that ahead of you. Um, yes. We can't talk about Mrs. Bennett without talking about Bridget Jones' mother because I they're know. one and the same.
2: Oh, I love her too. Her and Una
1: are just, oh,
2: that's a book that I read very young as well. And loved. And I think we know that the beginning of each entry, where she'd write down how her weight and how many Mm. units of alcohol and cigarettes. I had like a teenage obsession with that in my diary, too. And I just write down lists of stupid things for each day to monitor how they changed in the vein of Bridget.
1: Bridget Jones was always a reflection, it was never an instruction, Mm. and that forever as women, you know, we have been told to watch what we eat and worry about our weight and generally feel shame. And then there's sort of this rug pull of, um, oh, no, you're not being body positive. Stop it. <laughs> but I was just, well, I, I can't just be body positive all of a sudden. Now you're you're telling me that I'm getting feminism wrong.
2: Yes, I feel that too. I read, um, is it Eat Up by Ruby Tando? Yes. That made me think a lot about those narratives, particularly around food and eating and how we talk about them and how we think about them. Because I've put on weight since being on antidepressants. And when my partner and I were separated, she was our cook and cooked everything. And I'm a terrible cook. So I found myself just not being able to care for myself in terms of cooking and also being super depressed and not even having the capacity to even try. And so my body's changed a bit in this last year. And I think having read Eat Up and just trying to, to not obsess over what I had eaten or even mentally note it or to be so restrictive and to just kind of let it be and try and be okay with it. Because at the end of the day, it's not been a huge deal and I still I feel so much stronger and healthier and better now. I'm just a little bit bigger. But that's not the the nightmare situation <laughs> that that we're, I've kind of felt that I've had to feel that it is. And I'm still trying to make peace with that. But that was a good book for me at that time in terms of untangling some of that stuff.
1: I'm so sorry that you've had such a a complicated time and I empathise so, so, so strongly that sort of wanting to feel rational and wanting to say that this this is fine, all is fine, all is well, but... Struggling to sort of to match that emotionally, and I love that Ruby Tando book. And I often I've made it once, and I want to make it again. There's a a loaf cake, and you feed it every day with whiskey, I believe. Remember that? Yes. May I recommend a book that I really hope that you love? I discovered it actually. It's a book I got for my birthday. So Mm. um, my birthday was in March, and I've already read it twice. Um, My favourite writer that I discovered over the pandemic was uh, Laurie Colwyn. I don't know if you've come across her.
2: I've not read her, but I have heard you talk about her.
1: Well, home cooking kind of feels like a novel and is a recipe book, but it's it's like the essence of Nigella. And I understand that Nigella's mm. a fan. And oh, Emma, honestly.
2: Yes. Oh, that sounds amazing. I will definitely get it.
1: And it sounds like it can
2: be accessible to me in my terrible terrible cooking level so that's good
1: it's thanks to her that I'm overcoming my fear of aubergines I can never cook (laughs) them for long enough
2: I love them my partner makes a um what is it it's like a miso aubergine like egg bake thing it's amazing Hopefully it'll be Laurie approved.
1: Glorious. I'm sure she would be (laughs) thrilled and delighted. Um, I mean, if you wanted to, I don't know if the the recipe is online anywhere, but if you wanted to email it over, we can put it in the show notes. Yes. Um, (laughs) Emma, I'm so sad we are running out of time. Are there any books that we haven't talked about that...
2: Well, I cannot not talk about Nina Stibby because I think she is the greatest gift you've ever given me <laughs> from listening oh. to this podcast. I just, oh my God. Love Nina, I think is probably one of my favorite books ever. And I think I I'm so sure that I first discovered Nina Sibby through this podcast. Oh, I'm so thrilled to hear that. Yes, and I've read everything else. I just love her. And I think me being an Anglophile and having that romanticised view of London, particularly love Nina. It's just so warm and funny. And definitely the format of that was very influential to me in how I decided to lay out my book because it's got a lot of one-sided emails as opposed to letters but oh that book just I love it love it so much I think she's amazing
1: I've been thinking about it a lot lately because uh here there's been some controversy and I've not read the book or the review but there's a book about the Colors*, but I kept thinking of Nina's um writing about casting the colors and then yes. finding that book that sort of disproves her whole theory about her being yes. a recluse and then is it stella <laughs> saying you know what are you going to do i'm going to steal the book, <laughs> yes, and she takes book it so, from
2: the library so oh, no one yes. can ever know <laughs> <laughs> oh i just yeah that book is perfect I feel like that's one of those books that you read
1: and you feel like it's just made for you. And I felt like it was made for me. Someone asked me the other day about books about reading. And I thought, actually, Love, Nina is a wonderful book about reading.
2: Yes, you're right, because she really takes you on the journey of everything that she's reading and trying to understand. And I think it's so just lovely and accessible to read about somebody who – is so smart but just doesn't see it and and questions her intellect in the way I think a lot of us do and certainly I do um and it yeah it's just so interesting to see her doubt herself when she's so she just has such interesting insights all the time about everything she's reading
1: Emma, it's been such a joy and a pleasure. I'm so honoured to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for uh, taking part in the Books to Nourish auction and congratulations. Um, I'm so excited to see this book soar and hopefully, you know, for the next one, I'm coming to Australia.
2: Yay! Then you can come and see my bookshelves in real life. It will be very exciting.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Huge, huge thanks to Emma. Now That I See You is available in Australia and in some territories outside the UK. I am going to be begging my favourite booksellers to hunt down a copy for me. I'm sure it can be done. Your book is produced by Dale Shaw for New Alaska and hosted by ACAS. You can find us on social media at YBooked. It's always lovely to hear from you and huge thanks, as always, to everyone who's left us a five-star review. It really helps us to bring the podcast to new ears. We'll have another Books to Nourish podcast later in the year and we've got some more treats coming this series. Listen out for Nick Hornby, Catherine Heine, Esther Freud and some other Bobby Dazzlers that I won't name until producer Dale has the recording safely stowed away. For now, as Journey probably said, don't stop the reading. See you next time.